Well, the sermon today is going to be a little bit shorter than usual because between the two services today, uh, we actually have the honor of baptizing 21 people that are professing their faith in Jesus. And... Um, and that is a big deal. That's the, the most people we've ever baptized on a single Sunday. And because each baptism represents the fact that God miraculously gave the gift of faith to somebody, uh, we are nothing but incredibly grateful. You know, that throughout history, God's been doing a work of drawing a people together for himself and for his glory. We're united to him and to one another by faith. And while baptism itself isn't something that forgives sins, it is the symbol that sins have been washed away by Jesus' death and that that washing has been received by faith. And so while baptism itself isn't a miracle, you can kind of, you can dunk anybody in the water, it, it, it does represent a miracle that's happened in people's lives. And to see a small part of what God is doing in our little corner of the kingdom of God here is an incredible privilege. Um, there, there are many faithful churches that pray that, that anyone this year would be baptized and so to see the generosity of God and the blessing of God overflowing here is something that we have to be in awe of. And, and certainly it's not something we should ever boast about. When God's at work, he's always at work in spite of us, not because of us. Um, and, and so every good thing he does for us is a reminder of his grace. And so, so we are continuing our walk through the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew. And so we'll read today's passage. Uh, these are the words of Jesus starting in Matthew 5, verse 17. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus starts this passage in verse 17 by saying that he didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. And now when he's speaking of the law and the prophets, he's speaking about what we would normally call our Old Testament. And, and so he's talking here about, about a, a major portion of our Bible. And that means that this passage is going to matter a lot in our walks as Christians. Uh, we are people who believe that reading the Bible and basing our lives on the Bible and receiving wisdom and direction from the Bible is a vital and important part of our lives. But what do we do with the Old Testament? I mean, that's two-thirds of our Bible, which we believe to be God's word to us. But as we read through it, we see an awful lot of stuff that seems kind of archaic, that seems like it doesn't make sense. You'll read through and you'll find page after page of laws about animal sacrifices Laws for the court system in Israel, dietary laws, where among other things, we are prohibited from eating bacon. And so what do we do with that? I mean, we read through and we think, if loving bacon is wrong, I don't wanna be righteous. And so, but is that how we handle the word of God? I mean, do we just throw it out of the word of God? Like, if, do we say, this is the word of God, we read a prohibition against bacon, and then we say, but I like bacon. And we chuck it and say, therefore, I'm going to eat it. Like, is, that, do we, is it that loose of a, of a thing to us? Do we nullify God's word by our own preference? I mean, we know we wouldn't do that with other things. We're not going to read through the Bible and say, but I like to lie. And then say, well, I can lie because I like it. So, so why is it that we live the way that we live in light of all of those old and strange commands? And then on top of that, do we just say that if we read through the Bible and we find something that seems old and strange, we don't need to obey it? 
mean, is that how we approach God's word? We read it really reverently and then dismiss anything that seems old and strange and doesn't seem fun? If we're doing that, we could say the Bible's my authority as long as I like it. But that's not a real authority at all. So what do we do with the Old Testament? And Jesus makes very clear here that he didn't come to abolish it. And the word for abolish there is a word that means tear down. He uses that word in Matthew 24 when he talks about how the temple will be torn down. And he says, truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon the other, which won't be torn down. And it's the same as that word for abolished in Matthew chapter 5. So Jesus says, I did not come to tear down the Old Testament. He says instead that he came to fulfill it. And Jesus as the fulfillment is a big theme as you go through Matthew's gospel. We'll see it a lot as we jump into the Christmas narratives where phrases like it happened to fulfill come up again and again. And about a dozen times in Matthew's gospel, it talks about the events in Jesus's life being fulfillments of the things that were predicted in the Old Testament. And so Jesus didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. He didn't come to throw it out. He came to fulfill it. And we'll talk a little bit more about what fulfillment means in a second, but first look at verse 18. He says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus says he will not tear down the Bible because the word of God is a steady and permanent thing. I mean, normally when we think of things that don't change and can't be moved, we would normally think of things like big rocks and, and mountains. You go up to the Adirondacks, you climb up, you look out at the view, and you know that for thousands of years, people have seen this same view from up here. I mean, the buildings that are there, they've changed the landscape a little bit, but you know that those buildings are going to go away, but the, the rocks, the mountains, those things are going to endure. But Jesus says that the word of God is actually more permanent than those things. That heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of God will not pass away. The whole earth and sky, all those mountains, everything in it, that's all really flimsy compared to the abiding nature of the, the word of God. And he says, not only is the word of God abiding and permanent, but it's reliable in all of its details. He says, not an iota, not a dot will pass away. It was all breathed out by God as he, he superimposed his truth through these human authors, but he made it so that the slightest stroke of the pen in those original manuscripts, like the, the dot on an I or a cross on a T, was all inspired by God and all of it will remain until every promise comes true. So Jesus says that the whole Bible, all of it is reliable. All of its promises will be accomplished. And so just pause there for a second. I mean, this is what we have in the Bible that is the word of God. In, in an unreliable world, we have a reliable word. In a world where everything is changing super rapidly, we have a word that's more steady than a mountain. And for generations, people have anchored their minds and their hearts in the message of this book. And so let's not get away from those simple ancient disciplines of reading and studying and meditating on it and discussing it and hearing it proclaimed. For, for thousands of years, people have been sustained by those disciplines, hearing the word of God. And so, so we don't wanna get away from that or miss out on the, the massive blessing that it is to have mountains like that that are in our lives, that are steady, that are permanent, that are true, that are sure, and where every single promise will be fulfilled. Okay, so what else does it mean that Jesus came to fulfill it? 
Obviously, especially in a shorter sermon, we won't be able to fully unpack that idea. The book of Hebrews is all about that idea. But the one key verse that kind of explains what that means is that Hebrews 10.1 says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. So God's law, all of it was God-given, was given in part as a shadow of the true thing. So if you're at home and you're waiting and you're waiting for your spouse to return home after a long trip, uh, all of a sudden out of the corner of your eye, you see their shadow that's cast across the floor. And your eye follows that shadow until it gets to the real thing and sees the person that's casting that shadow. And then your eyes are fixed on the one who's cast the shadow and, and the shadow almost in your mind is kind of cast aside. And he says here that, that these laws in the Old Testament, at least portions of these laws were given as the shadow that was cast by Jesus. And then once Jesus arrived, we no longer fix our hearts on the shadow. So for example, all of the, the shadows of Jesus in the Old Testament are no longer practiced, which includes the sacrifices. Um, you, you read through, and again, lots and lots of pages with lots of animal blood on them. Lots of sacrifices that were supposed to be offered year after year, season after season, on all kinds of occasions, for different sins, for different celebrations. All of that ceased because Jesus fulfilled it as the ultimate sacrifice. Every one of those sacrifices was a reminder that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And they were all shadows of the true and final sacrifice that we have in Jesus. Jesus suffered once for all, fulfilling all of those signs so that they're no longer needed. Hebrews 9.12 says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So the shadow of the sacrificial system has been fulfilled in Jesus, and that's why we don't offer sacrifices anymore. The priesthood that stood between man and God ceased because it was a shadow of the true priest that would come. So Jesus comes and, and he exists among us and he continues to this day to serve as the priest, the mediator between God and man. Hebrews 7.23 says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So he didn't abolish the priesthood. He didn't tear down the priesthood. He just said, I'm the true and final priest. And then that whole temple system, you read through the Old Testament and there are pages of instruction on how to build the temple, how to decorate it, how to arrange it, what furniture should go in there. All of that ceased along with any geographic center for Christian worship because Jesus himself is the center of our worship. He said this to the woman at the well in John 4, verse 21. It says, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So as Christians, we don't have temples or tabernacles or, or sanctuaries in the biblical sense. Our church buildings are not temples. They're not the house of God. We actually, we, we are the house of God. 
These are just spaces where we gather to worship. And I think this is really important as we plant churches. We kind of stumbled into this glorious building a couple of years ago. We were looking at warehouses. Like we were, we were willing to meet anywhere where there was a roof over our head and we could keep it warm. And then God just blessed us with this. But it would be easy for us to think, well, you have to have this to be a church. Now, the beauty is good. We're thankful for the beauty of a room like this. It's, it's, the beauty is good because it says to our heart, there's more to reality, even when our minds are convinced there's not. Uh, the, the beauty is a good and God-given given thing to be thankful for. But God's church has met historically in places like the catacombs among bones and done just fine. Uh, last week, I got to visit uh, Girona, Spain, where the church that we're helping plant is. And it was a, a wonderful church of people who are speaking Catalan, the first Catalan-speaking church in centuries in the city of Girona. And that's the native language of the people there. And they were meeting in a hotel meeting room. And it's every bit as much the church as a building that meets in a glorious place like this. And so, so that whole temple system pointed to Jesus. And now that Jesus came, the temple system's no longer necessary because it was just a shadow of the real thing. Nice buildings are nice and good. And if you have beauty where you worship, that's a win. But ultimately that's not necessary because we are the temple. We are the household of God. Also, all the ceremonial laws and the food laws that set Israel apart from the other nations have been fulfilled in Christ. So this is our bacon loophole here. Mark 7, verse 18, it says, <laughs> Jesus said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Yeah. And, amen. <laughs> <laughs> And it was important at the time that Israel was a unique nation because through that unique nation, a unique savior would come. And so they had unique food laws, unique language, unique customs, unique practices. And then when Jesus came, when the one arrived, the shadows were no longer necessary. So it was all fulfilled in Jesus. And we, we read that and we say, okay, well, that's a lot of fulfillment. So is any of the Old Testament still valuable? Well, tons. Because in the Old Testament, God says what he's like and God doesn't change. You see in the Old Testament, his love, his wrath, his justice, his mercy, his demands. And those things are not changing. God is not a maturing God. God didn't come in Jesus and sort of turn into like the Mr. Rogers form of God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then in light of God's holiness and his perfection, he gives his moral law, which describes what he requires of us and what faith and love lived out should look like. Jesus didn't put an end to moral standards like don't lie and be faithful to your spouse. Those are abiding realities based on the holy order that God has instituted for society and for life and for us as individuals. So Jesus fulfills the scriptures in one sense by, by putting an end to the usefulness of the shadows, but that doesn't mean that he casts it out or tears it down. Secondly, Jesus fulfills the scriptures because the story of the Bible is all about him. When Jesus came, he wasn't just a reformer who called people to believe the Bible again. He was actually more than that because the whole Bible was about him. He wasn't just dusting off this old book and saying, we should obey this. He was dusting off this old book and saying, this is all about me. 
There's an account after his resurrection in Luke 24, where some guys are walking along the road and they're discussing all these things that had happened, that Jesus had been crucified. People are saying he rose from the dead. And so Jesus shows up to them in Luke 24, 25, it says, and he said to them, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So the story of the Bible is all about Jesus. I mean, it starts in a garden where Adam and Eve are walking with God in the cool of the day. It's paradise earth. God is among them. Their, their commission is to turn the whole world into essentially a paradise temple to bring honor and glory to God. God's going to rule over them in person, gently, as a father, as a friend. And then Adam and Eve decide that they don't want God to be their king. So they rebel against him. Things get really bad. And we start by wondering if, if the true king will ever come, the one can, who can rule and reign in righteousness. And then you keep reading through the Old Testament, and all these great kings come along and they have all kinds of promise. Some of them seem like that could finally be the one true king that God has called to be the king. But they all disappoint. And even the least disappointing among them still die. But then Jesus comes. And when he comes, immediately he's saying the kingdom is here. And everywhere that Jesus goes, that kingdom goes. The, the light of truth is shining through his words. Sick people are being healed. Blind people are receiving their sight. Hungry people are fed. There are all kinds of miraculous things showing that the king, his, king is there and the kingdom has returned. And then you go to the end of the Bible and the last, prom, last chapters of the Bible promise the return of Jesus where he'll rule and reign, fix all that's broken, rule again over a paradise earth that's been transformed into a paradise temple where God comes and dwells among his people and his people dwell with God. And for all that to happen, the king had to come and to die to pay the price for sin so that things could be redeemed, so things could be made new. It's all a story about Jesus. The big story of the Bible is all about Jesus. And then when we go to the little stories of the Bible, symbolically, they're all about him. In fact, all the disappointment that we feel as we read all the Old Testament stories all show us that there's another better one to come. So for example, you see Noah who gets on the ark, he rescues his family, rescues everybody from the wrath of God, rescues humanity, rescues the animals. But then Noah gets off the boat and you think, all right, what's this hero gonna do now? What's his next move? And he gets drunk and naked. To rip off Tim Keller's phrase, Jesus though comes as a true and better Noah who rescues people from wrath, but is sinless himself and doesn't fall after triumphing. He will restore his people to a perfect but not fallen creation like Noah did. So Jesus will come and fulfill what Noah failed to be. You see the story of Esther where she risks her life in her earthly kingdom to rescue her people from evil. She says, if I perish, I perish. Jesus comes and he comes as the true and better Esther who gives up a heavenly kingdom and then does perish for the sins of his people so that they could have life. Nehemiah rebuilds a wall in a broken down city among much opposition. Jesus comes and he rebuilds broken people and broken lives and one day will come and bring the eternal city that'll never crumble. Hosea marries a prostitute to make her clean and respectable, and Jesus does that and more for us. He washes our sins and brings us to himself. Our sin was worse than hers, but he makes us his spotless beloved bride. 
And so the big plot of the Bible is all about Jesus and all the little stories point to Jesus. The whole thing is all about him. So Jesus fulfills the scripture in that he fulfills the signs and and gets rid of the shadows. He fulfills the scripture in that he's the one that all the scriptures are about. And then thirdly, he fulfills the scriptures by enabling a new level of obedience in those who believe. Again, verse 19, he says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So there isn't enough time to unpack that. But because we get new hearts and new motives when we come to believe, because the spirit of God dwells within us, we can have far more obedience and far more motivation for obedience than we would have had had we not come to believe in Jesus. He gets real obedience out of people who were formerly hard-hearted. People who, who before would refuse God's love and therefore wouldn't obey now have received God's love and there is obedience. Also, Jesus fulfills it all by perfectly keeping the law on our behalf. In Matthew 5.20, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. These scribes and Pharisees were the full-time holy guys. And Jesus said, we need to be more righteous than them to enter the kingdom of heaven. Which means we're in trouble. I mean, Jesus says, take these scribes and Pharisees. They're the most holy people you know. And if you're not more holy than them, you don't go to heaven. He'll say it even more simply later in Matthew 5, 48. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. But Jesus, who came to fulfill God's law for perfect holiness, perfectly obeyed the law on our behalf and exchanged his righteousness for our unrighteousness. When Jesus went to the cross, he took our death and died it. He took the life that we should have lived and lived it for us. And when we get to the end of Matthew, when Jesus is going to the cross, you'll see that again, all of a sudden, one after another, the book of Matthew is quoting from the Old Testament to describe what Jesus was doing in going to that cross, going to the grave and rising again as fulfillments of the things that were predicted. So the ultimate way that Jesus came to fulfill the law was by meeting the law's demand for us, by perfectly obeying it, by going to the cross where where the laws command that the soul that sins shall die, that judgment went on him, even though he didn't deserve that judgment. He died and then he rose again. And he offers to all of us that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And that's the only way that our righteousness could ever exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees is if Jesus gives it to us. For us to ever enter the kingdom of God, we have to be perfect. And for all of us, that doesn't come from within. As much as he enables a new obedience in Christians, as much as the lives that we live should be radically different from those around us who don't believe, at the end of it all, we still fall short. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And none of our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Certainly none of us is perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. So we need a righteousness to be given to us. We need an alien righteousness, a righteousness from outside ourselves. And he says that the way that we receive that righteousness is not by earning it ourselves, not by producing it ourselves, 
but by receiving it by faith. And so if this morning you're willing to turn from sin and from unbelief and turn to believe in Jesus, if you're willing to believe that he died for you and was buried and rose again, you're willing to trust that that is enough, that you don't contribute anything to your own right standing with God, to your own salvation, to your own forgiveness. You believe that what Jesus did for you on the cross is what you need to be able to stand before God with his perfect righteousness. If you'll hang your life on that, if you'll believe in that, he promises to forgive you, to cleanse you, to give you everlasting life, to give you his perfect righteousness so that you can one day enter in to the kingdom of heaven with this righteousness that's not your own, but that's real, purchased for you by Jesus so that you can be made a son or a daughter of God. So believe today. Jesus came to fulfill that law on your behalf and he offers that to you as a gift. And if you'll receive it by faith, you'll be forgiven and you'll be his.